coming to you from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. I'm totally excited to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us today for the launch of our Martin Luther King Jr. Day National Book Study launch on Facebook Live and on Zoom. So I am here today with Dr. Drew Hart, who is a scholar focused on faith, race, and justice. And I'm so excited. This is the book, y'all. So if you haven't gotten the book, make sure you get this because this book Oh my gosh. So much. Drew, isn't that amazing? It's so good. So good. So <laughs> timely. I kid you not. This is literally, I'm like, literally, okay, look at, look. Okay. So look, this is like page two, <laughs> page four. This is like, literally, I am all over this book. This is literally prophetic. MLK was talking about 2021 and yeah. he did not even know it in 19. 19- 67. That's when he wrote this book. Because he had thoughts. He had written down these thoughts and he was already working toward them through the sanitation workers march, through the poor people's campaign. But he was beginning to make a shift from civil rights to economic and social rights. And that is something that America just can't stand. The reason why we are where we are right now is because we never dealt with the question of full human rights for people who are not white men, cisgendered, Christian, straight. Basically, they're the only ones who have full human rights, the ability to thrive, the ability to flourish in our nation or whose rights are fully protected. And so because of that, when we got Trump as our president, that was like a heyday for folks who, who really just want that. And now with the threat of the end of that presidency in just two days, white men just lost their minds, they lost their minds. And Dr. King talks about this in this book. So we are going to be going through this for the next six weeks with various guests. I'm so excited for our guests. We have Dr. Drew Hart will be with us today and also later on in February. We have Reverend Dr. Otis Moth III will be with us. I believe it's February 8th is the day that he chose. I'm so excited for that. That's going to be a really powerful conversation. Latasha Morrison will be with us. And also Bishop William Barber will be with us. And so I just want you to come back each time. You're going to get wisdom and make sure you get your book. And I actually recommend this version of the book because it's a legacy version. In other words, it's one where the proceeds go to the King Legacy and and the King Center and things like that, helping the King Legacy to go forward. Today is MLK Day. It is also the day of our launch. And today's conversation is being broadcast live from freedomroad.us Facebook page. We also have the Zoom webinar audience for those who are registered for the session for all six weeks. The recording will be available on Facebook Live directly following the conversation. So anybody can see this recording. Folks who are registered but weren't able to make the time 
will have the recording link sent to them. And starting next week, we'll be moving from Facebook and Zoom to our webinar platform, which is called Webinar Jam. And it's just a little bit more flashy with webinar stuff. And it's also just, it's a really great forum for us to have more intimate conversations with our people. Okay. So I've already introduced Dr. Hart to you. And I'll just say that the reason why we're doing this study is because last week, actually it was maybe two weeks ago, I picked up, I was doing research for my own book, for my next book, which I've been talking about forever. And I'm almost finished, you guys, I'm almost done. It's called Fortune. It traces 10 generations of my family story and asks the question, how race broke the world and my family and how we can repair it all. And I was doing research and I found a reference to this book in the research. So I got it and I started reading it. And I read one passage that literally blew my mind. It jumped out at me. We will be getting to that later. But in the meantime, let's actually just jump into the conversation, shall we? Dr. Hart or Drew, which would you prefer? Drew is great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks so much, Drew. Okay. So, Drew, this is going to be informal. In other words, I have the book. I have questions I have for you. If you have things you want to talk about, I want you to just say, hey, look, I want to talk about this thing right here. Yeah. I want to first just ask, what was your overall impression reading up through chapter one? Yeah, I just love late King. There's just so much other attention. And I, I just love, and I think one of the things that it got me thinking as I was rereading it this time for our conversation was just how important like self-reflection and looking back mm -hmm. and critical thinking about what we've been doing, what we've accomplished, yes. like the need for that kind of work is just so crucial. And I think that it's reminding me that we've got to be doing a little bit more of that. It's easy to just keep going and doing what you got going on. It's another thing to do an assessment of where you've been and where you're going. And so for him, it's, you know, Selma is this turning point, right? For him after that and hearing him reflect and seeing that you can see he's making shifts, he's making changes, he's realizing that what they've done before is not going to be good enough for what needs to happen, given mm -hmm. their current moment. So anyway, that's just my initial takeaway is just literally what he's doing right in this moment. Yeah. And it really strikes me that we, we have done so much just we've really had a modern yeah. day civil rights movement. Absolutely. In the, in the 2000s. I think it really kicked off in 2013 with the murder of Trayvon Martin and then the acquittal of his murderer. And the hashtag Black Lives Matter went out there, but didn't really catch on. And then in 2014, woo, like we had the river of hashtag lives that came out and and then Mike Brown and and Jonathan Crawford and Ezel Ford and, and, right, and, yeah. and then you had people take to the streets. And so you, we've had multiple pushes just like in the civil rights movement you That's know they right. had the birmingham campaign they had the selma campaign they had the montgomery campaign they had an atlanta campaign and all of these different places you had movement and together they make up the movement well you could say that was absolutely the case for us right now but what we do not have maybe we have some but we need more of just like you were saying we often hear the giants of the movement who are still living today reflect back on the movement 50 years later. And if we are studied enough, we might actually know some of their books that they wrote back then. But the thing that blew me away about this book is that this is Dr. King's immediate reflections. Yeah. He's in midstream. Like, He's in the midst of it. He is yeah. in the middle. He is reflecting on Selma 
two years after Selma. That's right. And telling us what happened after. And we don't ever hear that. We never hear about what happened the year after Selma. We never hear that. That's right. Okay. So here's my first thought. So I'm turning to page two. Okay. So on page two, I have my first wow. Okay. So page two, second paragraph. I'm just going to read second, third, and fourth paragraph here. It says, one year later, some of the people who had been, they're talking about one year later after the passage of Voting Rights Act in 1965, some of the people who had been brutalized in Selma and who were present at the Capitol ceremonies were leading marches in the suburbs of Chicago amid a rain of rocks and bottles among burning automobiles to the thunder of jeering thousands, many of them waving Nazi flags. That's right. That's what I, I said. Wow, that sounds a little familiar. And by the way, I always show that Chicago footage to my students in the classroom because Oh, they know all about the Southern stories and That's they right. don't know. And I always ask them afterwards because they're shocked that they didn't know. I say, why do you think you're not taught this? Why are you, not? the footage is there. You have Dr. King saying that this is just as scarier than anything he's seen in like Alabama, Mississippi. And yet it's not a part of their public education. Why? So I make them think through that. Yeah. Oh my God. Like you just, okay. That's right. Let that sit people. Why do you think you are not taught this? That's good. A year later, well, that same year, one year after the Voting Rights Act, some of the Negro, and I'm going to institute, I'm going to substitute Black because that just feels better right now. Right, right, right. Um, Some of the Black leaders who had been present in Selma and at the Capitol ceremonies no longer held office in their organizations. That's right. AKA John Lewis, right? Right, right. They had been discarded to symbolize a radical change of tactics. And right. what he's talking about there is he, talk, he goes into right. that later with the adoption or the election of Stokely Carmichael to the leadership. Right. Um, a year later, though, that same year, 1966, a white backlash, somebody say white backlash, had become an emotional electoral issue in California. OK, now this is so because we're going to get more into this Maryland and elsewhere. In several Southern states, men long regarded as political clowns had become governors or only narrowly missed election. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? Okay, watch and watch this. Watch what he says, okay? Their magic achieved with a brew of bigotry, prejudice, half-truths, and whole lies. Hmm. Y'all, it's a formula. Right. It's a and, formula. And it's important what he get. I mean, because I think it's easy in our moment to be like, oh, there's something unique happening here. And he's helping us see, no, this is just what happens and has been going on for a very long time. That's right. But he's recognizing that what he's seeing in that moment isn't the first time either. This is old. And so we've got to be attuned to the fact of what has come before and recognize how to respond in light of that. So it's really important that we recognize that. Okay. So that was my first big wow. What's yours? Yeah, let's see. First big wow, along with the reflection, let me think. I, I think that maybe some of it is how he diagnoses white America. He gets really hard on the idea that 
they have a very shallow and empty commitment to justice and equality. Not that those things are absent for most Americans, he says, but it's shallow. It's loose, I think is actually the language he uses, right? It's a loose definition of equality in there. And then along with that, and it actually reminded me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer a little bit, his language around cheap grace, right? Mm-hmm. It's cheap justice and cheap equality is what basically King is getting at. And he actually um, calls it that at one point. He calls yeah. it that. I don't yeah. remember. No, he does multiple times. Yeah, he actually mm-hmm. literally uses that language. And I think that he's getting at, for me, it's because I'm thinking about like over the summer, the response that so many folks had to Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery, to Breonna Taylor, to George Floyd. Yes. Um, and then all of a sudden the anti-racist books were all Woo! flying off the shelves and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad to see all that. But I always am concerned when things just seem to be like people want ideas in their heads, but not necessarily a commitment that's going to require any personal costs and any social cost. And yeah. I think that for me is pretty significant to name the way he names it, I think is really important for our moment today. So I'm going to just go through a couple of different places that actually get us directly to what you just mentioned yeah. um, in the book. So one of the things that he says that kind of blew another thing that blew my mind on the same page, actually on page two, we're going to say page two. So the bottom line, what I'm getting at here is that there was an appeasement that happened from the North. And what he gets at is that the North tends to work with, compromise with the South to appease it so that it doesn't explode. And That's right. always that Black people are the sacrificial lamb on That's the right. altar of those compromises. That's right. That's right. And not, now it's not just black folk, it's people of color, it's people women, color. Yep. It's, it's trans, it's LGBTQ. That's right. Everybody who's not white, male, cisgendered, straight, Christian man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's so I remember the very first time I learned about how Reconstruction ended mm-hmm. and learning about white Northerners basically doing that same thing. Yes. Reconciling with white Southerners so that they could keep the peace, right? It's at the expense of Black people. Oh, yeah, I guess we'll have to allow all kinds of white terrorism to be unleashed on Black people's lives, but we're willing to do that for the sake of white peace across the nation. And so that's some of the same patterns, again, that we're seeing in our present time. And yeah, I, I just think that we have to watch It's scary sometimes when even folks, and I'll say white folks in particular, who in some way or form say they're committed to equality and justice, and yet still they're willing to sacrifice us at the expense of keeping the peace, so to speak. And that's dangerous. That's always been harmful. Uh, Sometimes disruption and tension are much healthier things than keeping the peace. And they always, especially in the church, don't they use unity? Unity. Oh, everybody loves unity. You're disrupting Christian unity. Right, right. By protesting, by raising these issues of race. You're you're compromising unity. Somebody asked me about that once. I think it was on a podcast maybe a couple months ago. And I said, who do we need to be unified with? That's the question. What are we unifying around? We got to clarify that. Yeah. If we're not unifying around justice and equality and centering those who are most vulnerable, those who suffer most in our society, then something's wrong. Yes. Okay. So he asked the question on page three. So we're now at page three, (laughs) y'all. Why was widespread sympathy with the Negro, the Black person, revolution with the Black revolution abruptly submerged in indifference 
in some quarters or banished by outright his hostility in others. Why was there ideological disarray? So that feels like, I just feel like this is exactly what's happening. Okay, so there's another place. This is my, my, my third wow. Okay, so page four. He says, the outraged white citizen had been sincere when he snatched the whips from the Southern sheriffs and forbade them more cruelties. But when this was to a degree accomplished, the emotions that had momentarily inflamed him melted away. White Americans left the Negro. All right, I got to say it because I just, just, he says it a lot. So there you go. On the ground and in devastating numbers walked off with the aggressor. Do you hear it? Did you hear what he just said? That's we right. were sitting there whipped on the ground. Hmm. They stopped the whip. And then they, you know, went off with the aggressor and had coffee. All and right? it makes me, I don't know if it's intended or not, but when he's saying that, it has the Samaritan story in my mind, almost like he's yeah. invoking that in the backgrounds. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. That's good. That's good. And then he says, it appeared that the white segregationist and the ordinary white citizen had more in common with one mm. another than either had with the Negro. Yep. All right. Sorry. So I was thinking about this in relationship to George Floyd and what you were talking about, but you just said, look, my book actually reached a level on Amazon. It has not ever reached before. Right. So I'm yep. like, hey, yep. I think we reading. all experienced that. They're I reading. do not disparage. Please, <laughs> right. by the way, the very good right. gospel, y'all. So, right. And Drew Hart. Drew, what yeah. is your book's name? First one, Trouble I've Seen, but then Who Will Be a Witness is the second who, one. Yeah. Who will be a witness. Who will be a yeah. witness? So Trouble I've Seen, Who Will Be a Witness, Very Good Gospel, buy the books, get the books. We're not disparaging that. But folks bought those books Folks clicked in and said, I'm following on Instagram. And that was all around George Floyd's death. And a lot of people showed up and voted. The question now, though, is with the threat of the white nationalists who are showing up at capitals, unhooding themselves in your churches, how much will you do to appease to strike compromises, to say, let's slow down, right? right. Let's slow down and try to bring them along. Why? Your brothers and sisters of color are laying on the ground. Hmm. Still laying on the ground. Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So I want to ask the audience, actually people who are listening to us here in the Zoom room, Can you ask, I'd like to ask you the questions that Dr. King asks at the bottom of this page. He asks, 
Why is equality so assiduously avoided? That's a deep question. Why does white America delude itself? Because we know God. People are deluded. I have people, because we are doing this study, I have had people for the first time write back to me on my email list saying, I am banning you. I am going to, you are wrong. If you're saying that Trump is, has ever uttered a word of violence. And I didn't even say that. I just said there was an attempted insurrection and they were like, that was Antifa. Oh my gosh. So I'm asking you now, why does white America delude itself? And Dr. King asked, how does it rationalize the evil that it retains? Hmm. How have you seen in your church, in your community, in your family, around the dinner table, how have you seen rationalizations of the evil? And he's saying that it's, it's actively retained through the compromises. Hmm. All right. So how have you seen that? Dr. Hart, Drew, how have you seen that? Yeah, I think I always, there's a few things I always turn people towards. One is the idea around how we talk about ignorance, that there's such things as willful ignorance, right? Not all ignorance is the same. Sometimes people choose to, to believe what they want to believe. Now, I won't lie, like we're in an interesting moment today in terms of algorithms and all that stuff that make it even easier to just, you start down that path and then the path is given to you, right? Yes. Um, so you can go deeper and deeper. And so I do recognize there's some challenges, but nonetheless, what he's describing is still at the heart, the same thing, right? This choosing willful mm -hmm. ignorance, choosing the lies, choosing the deception. And then on top of that, then telling another narrative that covers up the truth of what's actually happening. I think that at the heart of like why so many Americans are so stuck on talking about American exceptionalism is because it it, it blurs and covers over the truth of genocide and slavery and Jim Crow and all kinds of racial oppression that's going on in this land. And so I think those two things for me are really significant. But I do think, again, we're in a unique challenge where I think especially in churches, they're going to have to think very hard about how do you disciple and form people oriented towards justice and freedom in a context where algorithms are powerful draws and deeply shaping people's imagination at levels unprecedented so far. And maybe, honestly, maybe there needs to be a movement to push tech to rethink its algorithms. Absolutely. In an Absolutely. ethical way to actually have some kind of a, a bottom line, a, a third bottom line in the same way that we created for business back in the early 2000s, where you are judging a tech platform by its third bottom line, by its ethics, by the way that right. it brings us together versus tearing us apart. Yeah, there was a, I forget if it was Google or Facebook, but there was a, I think it was Google. There was a black woman who was fired who her position was ethics and she was challenging. I think it was Google just Whoa. a couple of weeks ago. What? They let her go. And then there was a big stir and a lot of people in Google were defending her because she's talking about these very issues, right? I How the totally ethics behind that. the algorithms actually have a huge implication and they're not neutral. People like to think that they're neutral, but they're human beings creating the algorithms with their own biases. That's and so right. it has all kinds of problems behind it. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of work to be done on that front. Otherwise, it'll be devastating for our society and our capacity to even have meaningful, truthful conversations.
That's good. And I actually see a lot of people writing in a chat. I see the overwhelming uh, sense is white folks just don't want to give up their comfort. And these are white people speaking, like white people right. who are writing into the chat. One person, Kenny Nolan says, when you are used to privilege, equality feels like punishment. And that's, mm. it's like, whoa, I think Kenny, is that a quote out of the book? I, that sounds familiar. So another one, let's see. Another one is idolatry of identity. Yeah. We are good people, says Tanya Beeler. Lena Thompson says, oh, hi, Lena Thompson. <laughs> she says, equality is avoided because theology of scarcity. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Ooh, that just hit me. Because if you think that the world is a zero-sum game, then you must dominate to get yours. If you believe that God is the author of all things and God is infinite and therefore we have infinite possibilities, then you do not need to dominate. You do not need to, to hoard. You will be provided for. Lena, I want to say that it's also along with your theology of scarcity, maybe the the other side of that would be the development. And I've, I've been talking about this for a long time. And I feel like I'm now having to force myself to live it now that I bought a house. And when you buy a house, you buy into that middle-class dream. I'm feeling and I'm feeling the pool. I mean, I'm just gonna be real with you. I'm like, I want nice things, right? And, but but I, and my mom, <laughs> my mom is all about the nice things and she's living with me. But I've had to say, we are going to have enough, not more than enough. We're not going to have more than enough. So I think there's on the other side of needing to examine a theology of scarcity, there's the need to, to examine a theology of enough. That's right. Okay. So Dr. King on page five, y'all were up to page five. So on page five, he says, white America reaffirms its bonds to the status quo. So some other people in the chat said it's comfort, not wanting to lose privilege. This is what Dr. King says as well. It had contemplated comfortably hugging the shoreline, but now fears that the winds of change of, are blowing it out to sea. So that made me think, I'm like, what are people going to do when we start talking about reparation? That's right. I mean, what are people going to do when we start talking about restitution? When we start talking about the $1 trillion price tag that, in 1967. In 1967, that's right. That's, it's more now. That's but right. But the $1 trillion price tag on page six, y'all, we're up to page six. Paragraph two, the assistant director of the Office of Economic Opportunity, Hyman Bookbinder, love that name, in a frank statement on December 29th, 1966, declared that the long-range costs of adequate implementing programs to fight poverty, and the reason why we're focused on poverty here and not just, quote, inequality for Black people, is that at that time, about 50% of Black people were poor. More than 50%, actually, of Black people in America were living under the poverty line. Poverty and race were intricately married. So, he says, in order to do this, in order to fight this, the ignorance and slums, we will, we will need to reach a $1 trillion bill. He was not awed, Dr. King says, or dismayed by this prospect. This is a government worker. Like, this is somebody who runs the Office of Economic Opportunity. And he wasn't dismayed by it. What he said was, 
Um, but instead, he pointed out that the growth of the gross national product during the same period makes this expenditure comfortably possible. Comfortably possible. That's right. That's wow. right. And it's huge. If you think about it, I've been, it's just so fascinating what happens when things impact the whole nation versus when they just impact certain groups, right? So in our moment today, they're talking about $1 trillion. Biden's got a whole $1.29 trillion. Right. They're not afraid of these numbers. They're not no. afraid of these numbers at all when it's impacting everyone, impacting themselves. Yes. Uh, but when there's been direct harm against Black people and there's the opportunity to rectify it, to make it right, all of a sudden, oh, we don't, where, where's the money going to come from? We don't have that kind of money. No, they always had the kind of money. We could have done it comfortably at any point and still could do it comfortably at any points. And it will not fundamentally change uh, anybody's way of life. You know what I mean? It's just and a matter exactly of willpower. Right. Yeah. And in fact, Dr. King goes even further with this man's quote. He says, it is, he said, as simple as this. And I actually, so I didn't only underline this. I did a little squiggly so that I could really see it. <laughs> The poor can stop being poor. Mm -hmm. The rich are willing to become even richer a little slower. At a slower rate. That's it. Slower rate. Furthermore, mm. he says, furthermore, he predicted that unless a substantial sacrifice is made by the American people, the nation can expect further deterioration of our cities increased antagonisms between races and continued disorders in the streets. Now, are we not the evidence right now today? Are we not the evidence of what he just said? Yeah. Because we did not choose that way. This nope. was 1967 and the next president to be elected was Nixon who declared a war on drugs and actually made it a war against black people and a war to get back to poverty. That's and right. so the poverty rate for black people skyrocketed again over his tenure and Gerald Ford's and it leveled out with Carter, but then went right back up. It kind of yo-yos between Democrats and Republicans. The poverty rate goes up when Republicans are in office because they cut programs that actually help people from falling into poverty. And it goes down, but still never down to the point where it was in 1974, 1975, after 10 years of, or yeah, about 10 years of, of the war on poverty. All right, so here's my next piece. So this gets to, Drew, this gets to what you were talking about, the economic stuff. Let's dive into that. Can we dive into yeah, that? Yeah, we have to dive into that. Absolutely. Yeah, because that's the point, yeah. right? This is the thing. Dr. King is, is shifting in his last year. Last year, he's shifting from only looking at civil rights, as in they're called negative rights. They're the right to exist, basically, to economic rights. So what he says on page seven, y'all, we're up to page seven. Here we go. He says, and actually bottom of six to top of seven, when the constitution was written, a strange formula to determine taxes and representation declared that the Negro was 60% of a person. Remember, that's called the three-fifths compromise. So today, this is today, 1967, another curious formula seems to declare Black people are 50% of a person. Now, where does he get that from? This is where he gets that from. Of the good things in life, black folks brought black folks have approximately one half that of what whites have. And of the bad things in life, black people have 
twice the amount of what white people have. That's right. So I did a little bit of research just to update this because that was back in that day. All right, y'all. So hold on. So do you know the median wealth gap? Do you know that that figure? Drew? I'm not sure if I know it off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Okay. So median wealth gap between black and white. And I and actually I used to, and I have up to last year, I was using a particular figure that I got back in 2016. But this has been updated now to 2000 or Actually, no, this was done in 2016 and was updated in 2018. So as of 2016, the wealth gap is as such. The median white family has a wealth base gross of $171,000. That means they have liquidatable expenses minus debt. $171,000. That's the median. That's not the average. It's the median, meaning the middle. This is what middle class looks like for white America. What do you think the median is or was in 2016, the year that that America elected Trump to be president? What do you think the median was then? I would put about a tenth of that. A tenth of that would be my guess. You are literally light. Yeah. It was one tenth of that. It was yeah. $17,000. It always hovers around a tenth. It's been staying there. Yeah. So here we are not half. We're right. not 50% of a human being. We are 10% of a human being. Yeah. Now, now I went, did a little bit more research and I asked, okay, so what about weekly wages? Because he talks about wages and income and weekly wages in 2018, so this is updated a couple more years still, but in the middle of the Trump presidency, median weekly wage for black folk, what do you think it was? And everybody that, else uh, put it in the I chat. What do you know. think the median weekly wage was for black folk? At that time, for him? In 2018. Oh. In 2018. The median, like the middle. Again, not the average, the middle. What do you think, folks? Write it into the chat. What's the middle? What's the middle line for weekly wage? Weekly. So $10 an hour, says Shoni Scott. Shoni, do that in terms of weekly. Like what would the weekly number, like the weekly check somebody takes home, what'd that be? (laughs) Drew's doing the math. Okay, so Lisa Klein says 500. Rashawn says 600. 600, 350 a week, says Angela Lofton. Okay, Lisa, 400. Less than 4,200, says Steve. So less than $4,200. Steve, that's a very good safe bet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So in 2018, the median wage for Black people was $694. For Hispanic people, it was $680. So it was even lower. For white people... It was $916. This is the median. Now, if you were to take out women, it goes up. Because women get paid less than the men 
in every case. In every category, right? In every case, whether it's white, black, Latino, Asian, Native American, doesn't matter. Women are getting paid less. So if you're only counting black men, or let's say for white men, it goes up from nine, 916 to $1,002. That's their median. For black men, it goes up to $735 per week. And for Hispanic men, it goes up to $720 per week. But think about that. Like, that's not a whole lot. And most times these are people with families, not just individuals. They're trying to support an entire family. So that's what the gap looks like. So I want to ask, what's the next wow that you saw in the text? Yeah, I want to touch on, so with this idea that him focusing on economics, and you think about what he ends up doing, like with the Beyond Vietnam War speech and stuff, how is my, he's connecting things. Yes. And and I think what is powerful for our moment is, so with the, his critique on Vietnam, is not just anti-war position, but it's also that the money that's being spent for the war machine is out, is being deterred away from programs that could actually be eradicating poverty. And I think that's really powerful for the conversation that's happening right now around policing, the overspending and bloated budgets, policing, especially in our cities, the militarizing of, of policing, and how that can be deterred and turned towards things that actually help people, right? Mm-hmm. Housing, education, mental health, right? All the things that are actually the root of many of the problems that send people to prison in the first place. And so I I think that's so vital, that critique that he's making in general, and for him to be naming the economic problems and saying that, look, there's going to be some costly stuff, both individually, but also as a society, that we have to invest in people and try to make repair for what has happened. And how we spend our money actually does matter. And I think that's extremely important for our conversation right now. That's really good. I'm going to, I'm going to move us forward because we only have, we got so fast, y'all. We need more time. I want to jump forward to that section that made me want to do this book study um, yeah. as, a, as a national thing. And I want to hear your thoughts on it. So I'm going to go ahead and just read it. I'm going to read the whole section. So Dr. King is talking about, and this is on page 11. He's talking about how So I'll just read it. Even the Supreme Court, despite its original courage and integrity, curbed itself only a little over a year after the 1954 landmark cases, as in Brown versus the Board of Education, when it handed down its pupil placement decision, which is they did it a year later, a little over a year later. He, it, it made another decision that curbed Brown versus the Board of Education and Um, When it handed down the people placement decision, in effect, returning to the states the power to determine the tempo of change. Mm. So this subsequent decision became the keystone in the structure that slowed school desegregation down to a crawl. First question I just want us to to be thinking about is how can we be doing that here? What are not not how can as we want to, but how? What are the different tactics people can use to slow down progress policy-wise? What are the different things they can do to slow it down? Okay, keep going. Thus, America, with segregationist obstruction and majority indifference, silently nibbled away at a promise of true equality that had come before its time. 
These are the deepest causes for contemporary abrasions between the races. Loose and easy language about equality, resonant resolutions about brotherhood fall pleasantly on the ear, but for the Negro. Hello, somebody. There is a credibility gap. She cannot overlook. She remembers that with each modest advance, the white population promptly raises the argument that the black person has come far enough. We were talking about this toward the beginning. Get this, each step forward accents an ever-present tendency to backlash. And then we get to the good part. This characterization is necessarily general. It would be grossly unfair to omit recognition of a minority of whites who genuinely want authentic equality. And I know a lot of those white folk, they are with us. They're with us on the front lines. They're with us in the halls of Congress. They, are, they are themselves are organizing their people. That is real. Right. Uh, to be of European descent is not to be evil. There are people of European descent who have rejected the hierarchy that created the construct of whiteness itself. They have rejected their place, their quote, rightful place as the top of the hierarchy of human belonging. But Dr. King says, their commitment is real, sincere, and is expressed in a thousand deeds, but they are balanced at the other end of the pole by the unregenerate segregationists. And I want us to read there white nationalists, because that's how we would read that today, who have declared, somebody, that democracy, I'm on page 12 now, is not worth having if it involves equality. Hmm. That's right. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? And, Hmm. And then he goes on and he says, this segregationist goal, the segregationist goal is the total reversal of all reforms with reestablishment of naked oppression and, if need be, a native, as an American, form of fascism. Mm. So can we talk about that? Let's talk about that for a minute before we go no. to the other questions. Yeah, that's just, that's our moment, right? That is our moment. That's exactly what has happened. That was what brought Trump and Trumpism and mm-hmm. fascism and Christian nationalism into the public square in a way that it hasn't been for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, just wow. You you almost think he's writing for us and he's writing for, but, but it's just showing how things can repeat when you're not staying attuned to uh, what's going on around us. So yeah, I think that's huge. That's so vital for us to name that. of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. 
Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. gets me about this reality that he's named is that yeah. it is nowhere is it more highly concentrated than in the white evangelical church church yeah from which we came came out of the white evangelical church well My- not white black evangelical church um but ah. so, so i grew up in a black evangelical church and then mm-hmm. have been more inga- ingrained into anabaptist spaces more recently in black baptist but but certainly the proximity certainly through college mm-hmm. and different things has That's been there so these are right? yeah and, and i've seen i can see the way that white evangelicalism has served as a refuge for racism or for christian nationalism these things are just they, they're not that. easily torn, torn apart. What, I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know why my books do so well? is because I, during college, got centered and got to see firsthand as an outsider all that was going on. Half of my stuff is just telling stories of, of but, but as an outsider, describing. It's just descriptive. Yeah. Of just, I mean, the one moment I, I described being on the dorm, I remember one time we're hanging on the dorm and all of a sudden people start chanting, USA, USA. And I'm thinking like out of nowhere, there was, it wasn't the Olympics. It wasn't, it was just out of nowhere. I'm thinking like, this could never happen among black people. Like we just oh, don't do this, no. right? Like where's this coming from? It was like, literally just like, and that's something, it, it's so deeply ingrained and meshed, mangled into Christianity. It's into their mainstream version of Christianity itself. And it has diseased the tradition. I think Jennings says it right. A diseased social imagination has been birthed out of it. Everything it does then out of that vandalizes the name of Jesus. Everything. It's because it's none of it is untouched. That's yeah. That's deep. Yes, Lisa, he called it fascism. Yes, he did. Yes. So Lisa, Lisa Keller said, or Kilheffer said, he called it fascism. Wow. Yes, he did. Yep. The thing that kind of blows my mind, a lot of things have blown my mind today, but the thing that, well, another thing he kind of names on the next page 14, he says the 10 year assault at the roots of segregation was fundamental to undermining the system. What distinguished this period from all preceding decades was that it constituted the first frontal attack Mm. on the racism at its heart. Since before the Civil War, the alliance of Southern racism and Northern reaction, and that Northern reaction he's talking about is the reaction to appease, to compromise, has been the major roadblock to all social advancement. The cohesive political structure of the South working through this alliance enabled a minority of the population to imprint its ideology on the nation's laws. So here we go. We go right back to critical race theory. Hello, somebody. Yep. Critical race theory. Critical race theory. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's holding us hostage. And I'm assuming it's historians that came up with the phrase, but that, because I think I've seen it mostly through historians where they say the South lost the physical war, but they won the cultural war, right? Mm-hmm. The, the ideologies 
worn out. That's the crazy thing. Their narrative, their version of things for a very long time was the dominant narrative that white Northerners accepted. Mm -hmm. And that's why white evangelicalism, so many, what got them in trouble is in the compromising, they've inherited the logics of Southern Christian evangelicalism also as a part of it um, because they wanted to get along so well. And so it's just dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. and, And we have to see the way that it it gridlocks everything that we do, everything we can't, people say we can't have nice things. We can't have nice things if we don't exercise that demon. Ooh, that's good. That's good. Now y'all, there's a few more pages left in this chapter, but we don't, we're running out of time. We have four minutes left and I want to make sure we get to these questions. And, and actually we have three questions in the Q and a part and two of them are more statements. <laughs> One of them is yes. That struck me hard too. Yes. I'm Sharon Andrews. Yes. I'm glad. Thank you for that. Rashunda Whidbey says, will you provide weekly action steps that we can take? And the answer is yes. So what we're going to do is we're going to offer a reflection question for you to reflect on, or a couple of them actually, for you to reflect on between now and next week. And also between now and next week, y'all got to read chapter two, because next week we're talking chapter two, which is Black Power. Hello a somebody. And I'm actually going to be talking about that by myself on my own, because I, I, my mom was a part of SNCC. She dated Stokely Carmichael. Hello. Who actually was the person who coined that term. He wasn't the first person to say it, but he was the first person to make it a national movement uh, thing. So I want to talk a little bit about that and especially through a theological lens, but yes, every week we're we're going to be offering that. Tim Coburn asks, I, a white male pastor, find myself making some concessions, specifically with the terms I use, in order to journey together amidst a church of differences. Okay, so Drew, this is, I'm going to put this question to you. It is tricky, but the desire to bring the people who need discipleship in racial justice, the most white males, tends to lead me to try to teach on racial justice in a way that doesn't provoke the backlash, but educates and disciples it. Would love some further thoughts and perspective on this. Mm. Just not sure how to determine the appropriate tempo of change in our context. We are in downtown Sacramento and have a lot of differences in our church and community. Tim, thank you. You literally asked the question. All right, Dr. Drew Hart, who actually does disciple and teach on this and figured out the tempo, talk to us. Yeah, I think some of this is going to force us to do some self-examination work around our own priorities and how we value different people in actuality and community. Because I think the temptation that we're all socialized into is to center Mm -hmm. white men in everything that we do, right? In -hmm. our work, even when we're doing anti-racist work, the temptation, if we're not unconscious, will be centering white men and their lived experiences. But by doing that, you will, by, by definition, be putting other people more vulnerable in harm's way in, mm-hmm. in the conversation. And I think as followers of Jesus, I think the teaching is pretty clear. The first are last and the last are first. We, we see Jesus centering um, those who are most vulnerable, centering the least, last, and lost in society, centering uh, the Samaritans, vulnerable women, the poor, right? Those who are most stigmatized as the starting point. Not that there's not a space. There's a space for the centurion to come and to recognize and let go of his authority and come in into that space, but not 
not to the exclusion of and marginalizing of other people. So I think that's really the hard work that we don't want to get to the point where there's no place for folks to have repentance, but we can't be so focused on their repentance that we're willing to harm the very people that we say we're committed to. And so I think that affirming their dignity, their worth, their value has to be enfleshed in our actual practice in community. I always say for inverse, I'll give a shout out again. Like we have a practice. We say first are last and last are first, even in terms of speaking and who gets to speak when, right? And we invite Black women and women of color in, in particular to start off in terms of when we get into our conversation time. And we actually tell white men that they're going to be our leading listeners. They'll get their moment, but they're going to be last in line as it relates to who enters into the conversation. How do we flesh this stuff out in real ways? And what is surprising is that a lot of people actually, even the white men, come to realize this is actually really meaningful, that this is liberative for them too, that this is not to harm them, that we care about everybody, um, but we also got to unscramble the hierarchies that we've been uh, socialized into. It's funny because we actually have an example of this in scripture. It's called Acts 6. Acts 6, right? exactly. Acts 6, that's exactly what Acts 6 was. Acts 6 was that moment of decentralization of the majority culture in the first church, and literally the very first church. You had the, the majority culture there were the Jews, the Hebrew, Hebraic Jews, and the Hellenist Jews, the ones who had converted into Judaism, were on the outside, and they were getting short-shifted. They were the ones who, like in their daily worship appetite, they were starving. They weren't getting it. They weren't being fed, literally weren't being fed. And so the Hellenistic brothers and sisters said, yo, y'all aren't feeding my mama. Come yeah. on now. So what did they do? They shifted the power and they centered the Hellenistic Jews. And they said, y'all get to actually now decide who gets fed when. Everybody, not just you go feed your people, but you now head up food distribution for everybody. That's a shift of power. That's a moving from the margins to the center and a shifting of from the center to the margins, quite That's honestly, right. to to the circle, the larger circle for the, the Hebraic Jews who had won everything up to that moment. That's right. So that's really great. Thank you so much for that. Okay. Oh, we have a few more questions in the chat and we are a little bit over, but we actually got a little bit of a late start. Started a little late, right. So we'll make up for that. How can we hold the new administration accountable, says Monica Taramani. We need progress, and now is the time, overdue in all honesty, instead of looking to appease across the aisle. How can we hold the new administration accountable? First of all, we can hold them accountable by making sure that we are continuing to raise our voices. We are raising our voices in Congress because Congress responds to their constituents. So you need to be writing to, tweeting to, and visiting your elected officials, whether they are your city officials on the city council, your town council, your school board, or whether it's your state and federal officials, your senator, your local house member, not local, but your state's house member, your district's house member rather. And you can also write to and tweet to President Joe Biden, when he is sworn in, you can do that. And I'll tell you, they listen to that stuff. They actually do. So you need to be raising your voice on online, but don't just raise your voice. Talk to your people. Because the thing is, politics, I love, Jim Wallace has a really great quote. And I, 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 was, I worked with him for six years. And so I learned this like the back of my hand, but it's true. 
There are three kinds of politicians. There's the kind of politician who is dead set against, it's the segregationist, who is dead set against movement or reform. And no matter what, no matter how logical your proposed policy is, they will oppose it. Then there is the politician who puts his hand up to the wind and says, which way is the wind blowing today? And the wind is the poles. Which wind, which way are the poles blowing today? What is the, which do the poles tell me that the people want and wherever the people want, they will go. That's called the movable middle. And then there are the politicians that are actually in office to do justice. They are there because they so deeply believe they've already read this. They already know the way to go or they have a very um, sharp sense of it. And so you don't need to push them there. You need to partner with them and you also need to support them in prayer and correct them when they go off track, you know, say, oh, wait a minute, ethically, what you just said is actually not right. So, so they're not God. Um, you need to center your faith. So how do you hold this administration accountable? We're not sure yet. We don't know yet whether this administration is going to be this kind of an administration or the kind that is in it to do justice. We don't know. Biden is not one of the most progressive people in Congress. No, he's not. He's actually very moderate. And that's one of the reasons why he was elected. But this is our opportunity right now. This year, literally this year, is the opportunity for us to begin to push this administration to go beyond the status quo that Dr. King so rightly pointed at that white moderates want to keep and therefore keep their black and brown brothers and sisters on the ground. So how do you hold the administration accountable? You communicate with them through every means necessary. Shelby Clark asked the question, love the weekly action steps that will be coming. I also wonder if you might be willing to send the resources beyond Dr. King's book that you discussed during the webinar. Yes. Drew, would you be interested? Could you send me a list of some of the resources that you mentioned in the midst of this webinar? I'll also add to the list some of the things that I mentioned in the course, and we can send that out via email to all of the people who are registered each week. Okay. All right. So make sure that we get that, or at the very least, put it in the chat for you during the, the subsequent weeks, but we'll send it to you an email this time. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Freedom Road Institute for Leadership and Justice is a project of Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. And the podcast, which this will also appear on the Freedom Road podcast, um, is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this episode is also recorded in partnership with Inverse Podcast. So this will also appear on Inverse Podcast, maybe the day after we launch on uh, Freedom Road. So this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. And Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. So we ask you to stay in the know by signing up for our updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. And please listen in to the Freedom Road podcast again next month. It drops around the first day of each month. This particular episode will be dropping on the first day of February. And so come and join us. Join us on Freedom Road and join us in in the Institute where you can have an incredible learning journey and the one that we're about to embark on 
we are embarking on, asking the critical question, where do we go from here? God bless you. Thank you.